It's December 20th, 2021, and this is the Watson Weekly, your essential e-commerce digest. Today on our show, is Meta taking aim at Shopify? Instacart's president, Carolyn Everson, departs after just three months. What's with all these new marketplaces? What does 2022 have in store for buy now, pay later? And finally, the Investor Minute, which contains five items this week from the world of venture capital, acquisitions, and IPOs. But first, in our shopping cart full of news, is Meta taking aim at Shopify? Business Insider recently reported on a leaked memo from Meta which discusses its e-commerce ambitions. Here are a few points from the report, most direct quotes from a Meta executive. One, we need to make progress against our vision of our apps being a primary destination for commerce. Two, our offsite ecosystem remains critically important, not least because we will have U.S. offsite sellers that decide never to upgrade to on-site and a large international presence of off-site shops for quite some time. Three, growth and on-site purchases will help commerce merchants that are feeling the pain from Apple's iOS change. All these things are true, and from the perspective of the meta-advertising business, which is still recovering from Apple's recent iOS changes, along with many marketers who depend on the platform. But, you knew there was a but, right? Here's what meta is missing. First of all, The way Meta describes the world is incredibly self-centered. Anyone whose store is on another platform is part of the off-site ecosystem waiting to upgrade. Or downgrade, I guess. Have you ever looked at Facebook shop? Yahoo stores were better in the year 2003. Second, the consumer is on the engine of this whole flywheel. If there are no consumers, there is no merchant spending money on ads to attract those consumers. But what does that matter to Meta? It's not mentioned in the report at all. I'm particularly struck by the phrase, primary destination for e-commerce. Know who else wants to be the primary destination for e-commerce? Yeah, that big company in Seattle, Amazon. Yes, the same company that 63% of consumers start their product searches with. So a company that doesn't even identify the buyer in its memo is going to topple the greatest e-commerce company the world has ever seen? Not bloody likely. Finally, by all accounts, Facebook's engagement is declining. Who are they losing share to? TikTok, that viral sensation you can't take your eyes off of, which is incidentally capturing the rest of the attention of the younger generations whenever they're not playing Roblox or Minecraft. Which leads me to think, if I'm competing with Meta right now, I see opportunity everywhere. Why? The company seems to have lost its way. Many top executives are leaving, and the company has lost sight of the reason its current users are there. It's no wonder that Amazon and Walmart's advertising businesses are skyrocketing. Our second story. Instacart's president, Carolyn Everson, departs after just three months. It's certainly been a rocky road for Instacart for the past year. Let's review a few key events going back to 2019. Seth Dallaire left his job at Amazon's VP of Global Ad Sales to join Instacart in November 2019. At the beginning of 2020, Instacart was valued at $7.9 billion. In October 2020, the company's valuation doubled to $17 billion in a new $200 million funding round. In March 2021, the company's valuation more than doubled again to $39 billion on a $265 million funding round, becoming the second largest U.S.-based unicorn behind only SpaceX. 
So you have Instacart at the height here in April 2021. The company had gone from an $8 billion valuation to a $40 billion valuation inside of a year. Given the fact that there's no way their revenue made similar gains, that already puts the company on shaky footing. At that time, then-CEO Apoorva Mehta said he had a 20-year plan. Unfortunately, the board had other plans for him. A few months after saying he had a 20-year plan, Apoorva Mehta was reportedly forced out by the board and their main investors. In August 2021, Fiji Simo joined Instacart as CEO coming from Facebook. Fiji Simo's first hire was Carolyn Everson that very same month, also from Facebook, another advertising company. In August, the company announced that it held failed talks to merge with DoorDash. Incidentally, this was the first job that Fiji Simo had to do. In October, Seth Dallaire, who joined just two years prior, left for Walmart. October also sees Instacart acquire Caper AI, a smart cart technology company, which seemingly fits within none of Instacart's existing business. Now in December this year, Carolyn Everson leaves the company. I said it's been a rocky road for Instacart, but that is an understatement, and the path forward is also rocky. Unfortunately, I'm not seeing a lot of good possibilities, but there are really just a few options for the firm. First, Instacart could become a grocer itself. Ultimately, however, this would be suicide as it puts them in competition with their current customers. The most likely outcome in this bucket is to merge with an existing grocer, of which the primary options are Kroger and Ahold Delays, both of which have only about $40 billion of valuation apiece, making Instacart a very difficult merger. If Instacart's value keeps declining and its market cap goes down, then it would be more likely that Kroger or a company like DoorDash would acquire it. It's not an accident that the first thing the board told Fiji Simo to do the first month she was on the job was to try and get the company bought by DoorDash. Second, Instacart could become an e-commerce platform company. This would entail moving past the company's previous acquisition of Unata and potentially buying a full-blown headless e-commerce platform that is optimized for the industry. A private equity buyer could also help. Instacart merged with Mercatus, one of the leading solutions in the space. Unfortunately, I don't believe this is a big enough market for Instacart to be able to justify its current valuation. Third, Instacart could become a logistics company. This would position the company as a partner to grocers looking to improve their experience by helping them redesign stores of the future that are optimized for curbside, something like an Urbex. I don't believe Instacart has the experience or capital to invest in supply chain now, unfortunately. Furthermore, the margins of a supply chain business are also small. Instacart is valued like a technology business today. Fourth, of course, Instacart could stay on its own. In their current state, the best way forward for them could be to go public via reverse merger. This could give them enough funding to attract the proper logistics talent and make them more investments. Finally, Instacart could pivot out of grocery altogether and become solely an advertising company. The challenge is Google, Facebook, Amazon, or Walmart would be the only companies with enough size to handle its valuation. They already have well-established platforms. You might be wondering, isn't Instacart still convenient? Well, yes, but on its own, that's not enough. Instacart was the first mover, but those advantages don't last forever. Sad to say, but this is one of those cases in which the pandemic may have killed the company. Ultimately, I predict it will decline in value until it gets bought by a strategic industry player. Our third story. What's with all these new marketplaces? We've seen a stream of new online marketplaces in the past few years, from Kroger to Macy's to Albertsons to Bed Bath & Beyond. 
So much so that the most common question I get these days is, why? You could come up with a number of practical responses. The best answer you hear from a retailer building a marketplace is that there is so much traffic and the retailer is missing opportunity because it doesn't have products consumers are consistently searching for. Most people would assume that there is only one way to build a marketplace and that they want to tackle Amazon and Walmart head on. That couldn't be further from the truth. Most medium to large retailers are buying products wholesale and using dropshipping to fill in the gaps between vendor orders. Many also have substantial dropship programs which are most commonly based on EDI. The challenge with this approach is that it takes considerable resources, even with an experienced provider to onboard EDI vendors because you need to coordinate roadmaps on both sides. This destroys the ability to be nimble. Increasingly, when I hear that a marketplace is a strategy for a retailer, particularly a mid-sized retailer, often one of the primary reasons for it is a quote-unquote curated marketplace. But what does that even mean? Ultimately, it means that the retailer does not want to onboard thousands of brands because that's not the kind of company it is. Instead, the retailer wants the ability to onboard dozens or a couple of hundred cool and interesting brands each year that don't understand the old school world of EDI. And even if they did understand EDI, the technology doesn't allow onboarding of these brands quickly enough to make a difference in the roadmap. Maybe these brands are on Shopify or big commerce today. The point for a retailer is not even always sales. Curated marketplaces often means that the aesthetic and brand fit is more important than the sell-through, at least initially. And the success of these marketplace experiments can then lead to deeper wholesale relationships. And our last story. What does 2022 have in store for buy now, pay later? One area we don't always cover here is payment trends. Out of all the payment methods you can think of, one of the hottest trends is the rise of debit and buy now, pay later, which is eating into the share of traditional credit cards. This is represented by things like Square's Cash App, which also bought Afterpay, PayPal, Klarna, Affirm, and Sezzle. The online outlet Payments.com recently released a report about buy now, pay later, highlighting a few facts about the momentum of the industry. But why? The reasons are pretty simple. First, It's not as open-ended as a credit card. The consumer generally has to pay for the item in four to six weeks, and then it's done. As a result, the consumer is not able to build up revolving debt. Second, many people, particularly the young or those with weak or no credit scores, are not able to access credit. This offers an option with guardrails against overspending. So how is adoption doing? First, based on a survey in the last year, payments also said at least 20% of the population has tried buy now, pay later at least once. For now, this is mostly online, but providers are looking to bring this option offline, particularly Square, which runs POS systems for many small retailers. Second, more than two-thirds of users who have tried in the last year self-report that they will use it more, and 70% of people who have not tried it report they will over the next year. Simply put, 2022 could be the breakout year for buy now, pay later. Third, flexibility is increasing. Just look at what a firm is doing, enabling you to buy something and then within 24 hours of a purchase, decide in your own terms how you want to pay for it. Later, much later, or even depending on the value of the transaction, immediately. Paying off immediately can come with rewards such as 5% stored in an account for you, similar to top credit card rewards programs like Amazon's own credit card. Money in an account is preferred by many consumers over credit card points programs, which most consumers have been burned by over the years. Even Amazon launched with Affirm as its exclusive provider this year for these types of services. 
What does this mean for merchants? While the average direct-to-consumer store has had this technology for a while, it's not everyone. As a result, if you haven't added it to your e-commerce site at this point, you're a little bit behind the curve. If you want to get ahead of the curve, particularly if you are considered high-value purchase, I advise adding this as a payment option for your retail store as well. It's not widely adopted here, and particularly your younger customers would appreciate it. Either way, look for this to be a growing part of payment share in 2022, which is a good trend for any merchant. It's that time, friends, for our Investor Minute. We have five items on the menu today. First, the private equity-backed e-commerce agency The Stable acquired two of the bigger e-commerce agencies, BVA and Zayner. My experience with these kinds of roll-ups is not as good as you might expect. While bigger companies can enjoy better service with a larger agency, small to mid-sized brands often get worse service from a larger agency. Second, Enterprise supply chain provider Ryder acquired nationwide e-commerce and omnichannel fulfillment provider Whiplash. I'm trying to get my head around this valuation. I saw reports that Whiplash was at $300 million in revenue at the end of 2020, and the acquisition price is $480 million. This seems a little low as I'm seeing 3PL valuation somewhere in the three to four times revenue range, but there's probably something I'm missing here. Third, Competitive pricing tool Anakin raised $2 million in order to give brands real-time data on their competitors. This is one area I can attest to being underserved, despite the fact that there have been tools in this market for the past decade. Just last year, I installed almost all of these app vendors in the Shopify app store, and hardly any of them actually worked out of the box. If Anakin can make this easy, they could have a path to growth. Fourth, Sequoia and Bessemer invested in a headless e-commerce infrastructure startup called Gadget. What's most interesting about this is that these are ex-Shopify developers investing in headless infrastructure. And finally, platform as a service provider Soligo raised $48 million. Soligo became known for its NetSuite ERP integration technology being an early leader there. Its new funding should help them establish a foothold in Microsoft Dynamics and beyond. Congrats to CEO Jan Arendt, who I've known for a long time. That's all for this week. Till next time, Watsonians. Hi, I'm Rick Watson, CEO and founder of RMW Commerce Consulting and host of the Watson Weekly Podcast, your essential e-commerce digest. Our show is produced by Citizen Racecar. Alex Brower is the producer and also wrote our theme music. The executive producer is David Hoffman. To hear new episodes of the show every Monday morning, subscribe now at rmwcommerce.com slash Watson Weekly and wherever you get your podcasts.